everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? This podcast is coming to you from the American Enterprise Institute. I am Naomi Schaefer Riley, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Ian Rowe, a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we have as our guest one of our favorite colleagues, Catherine Stevens. She is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and she focuses on the area of early childhood. Many of us at home these days in our quarantine have become really immersed in the world of early childhood. <laughs> so we wanted to discuss some recent research and policy questions that have come up, particularly during this time period. And the first one, Catherine, welcome, is I wanted to ask you about this new interview that came out with James Heckman. So I wanted to start maybe if you could tell us a little bit of background on Professor Heckman and why this interview was so surprising to a lot of people. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to see both of you guys. So James Heckman, as many people know, is a Nobel Prize winning economist at the University of Chicago who has for years been working on an area which he describes as the economics of human potential. And as a part of that, he has been looking at how children's lifetime skills and abilities derive from the very earliest months and years of life. As a part of that work, he has done two very widely, been doing research on two very widely cited early childhood programs, the Perry Preschool Program and Abbasidarian. Those two programs, as many people know, took place in the 1960s with one had a group of about 53, Perry Preschool had 53 very poor African-American children. Abbasidarian had about 120 children from birth to five, also African-American, very poor. And what he found was that for those children, what was in fact an extremely high quality in intensive early childhood program, there are two different models, which I can talk about, but had long-term lifetime effects. And his argument was that for children who are coming from families who are not able to adequately support kind of the bedrock of their early development, programs like this, very high quality programs, can partially fill in some gaps. And those, these programs, we should say, have been cited everywhere. I mean, his, his research, you know, people have read about grit, all these popular books, James Heckman's name appears, and these programs and their results are highlighted everywhere. Everywhere. Despite the relatively very small sizes. You're right. 53 kids. It's amazing. Right. So there's several things that have gone on. First of all, they have been cited widely by advocates. Advocates are different from researchers. So if we're trying to find out, for example, what kind of chemical ion crosses the nerve membrane causing nerve impulses to travel, we don't have calcium ion advocates and potassium ion advocates. There's no advocates involved. The research continues and we figure out how things work. As we know in the social sciences, actually social scientists don't have the luxury of doing work that no one pays any attention to. So his findings have been widely cited by early childhood advocates in support of things that bear, for several reasons, literally no resemblance to the two very small programs that he has done research on. So if you read his work carefully, he has always said that the primary powerful influence 
on young children is their home environment and their parents. That he has always said that public, out of home, essentially group institutional arrangements cannot do what high quality parenting does. He finally has said that when children, as a small, a substantial minority of children, don't have those, that kind of nurturing, supportive home environments, our best bet in many cases is to help fill in gaps with very high quality programs. So it is the case that neither the advocates who cite his research have read his work, nor frankly, have the people who've criticized him read his work. So what he said in maybe a blunter way than he's, he's, he's previously done is completely consistent with what he said. So there's a couple of ways that people need to understand his research does not apply to anything we're talking about in terms of public early childhood programs, much less universal ones. And as you just said, the first program, Perry Preschool, the most widely cited one, was for three and four-year-olds. It was a nine months a year for the three-year-olds and the nine months for the four-year-olds. It was two and a half hours in the morning combined with a weekly hour and a half to two-hour home visit with the mother to coach her in supporting the child's development. 53 children participated in the 1960s. That's the first program. The second program was for children from birth to five, which in fact, if you are trying to intervene in the lives of of the very most disadvantaged children, some of the children, Ian, that you work with, that is the model that makes sense. Because what we know is that very important development starts really kind of in the first week of life. The Abbasidarian program- Sometimes prenatal. Actually, that's neither of these programs address that, and the research is pretty clear that we may get our biggest bang for the buck by shifting a great deal of our attention to prenatal care for disadvantaged pregnant women. The Abbasidarian program was from birth to, to kindergarten entry. That was a full day, full year, very intensive program. Again, with about 120 kids, they had nurses, they had therapists, the ratio of dedicated adults was something like one to three. And it was targeted at the very most disadvantaged children for the reasons that I explained earlier. Well, this is one, one thing that I just I want to tease out here a little bit, which is the personnel. I mean, whenever we're talking about, you know, universal early childhood programs, the idea that there is some huge pool of people who are super qualified to be doing these kind of interventions, it just, it goes as this assumption. And the only thing that you hear is, well, obviously, you know, if we paid them $75,000 a year or something like that, you know, these people would be there, they would be here, and, and then we would be able to replicate these kind of results. And it seems to just ignore, you know, who is actually out there willing and able to do this work. Right. Let's ignore several things. Using these two programs to come up with ideas about education is wrong for several reasons. One, these programs are not universal. These programs are targeting the most needy children. There's a whole other body of research, most notably in, in Quebec, that did, in fact, implement scaled up universal early education, which has made it very clear that early childcare does not benefit development 
of most children. There's right. debate about whether it harms it or not, but the research is clear it does not benefit it. Number one, as Heckman himself said in the, in the recent interview, and as he's been saying for years in his other writing, for most children, the optimal early learning environment is their own home. Right. Now, there are realities of women's work, of the economy, which are a separate issue, which we can talk about. But from the point of view of child development, for most children, the optimal early learning environment is their own home. So if we take yeah. that premise, what's your biggest implication then for public policy around this issue? Because it seems that most folks take Heckman's interpretation and they want to invest in early childhood education, meaning that there's got to be some institutional solution. But what you're saying, actually, it's not that it contradicts that. It's just that there's a force more powerful than group institutions. So what do you think is the biggest public policy implication? Among women with children under age three, the birth to age three is, is, is really the most critical period. A little under one half are working. So first of all, there are a whole lot of families who are already home with their, their young children. From the point of view of child development, and that means really point of view of long-term human capital. Developing people. <laughs> yeah, right. Like people and long-term human capital development. Policies that enable a greater number of families to spend more time at home with their very young children make the most sense. And I want to emphasize from the point of view of human capital development, there are other considerations. I'm speaking just from the point of view of early development. The idea that the optimal early development pathway is non-parental, out-of-home, group institutional care is absurd. It's absurd from the point of view of human development, what we know about human development, absurd from the point of view of brain science, and there is no research to support that idea. On the other hand, we can identify a relatively small group of children who we know are very much at risk for compromised development. In relevant to what you were saying about prenatal, maternal depression during the prenatal time, prenatal and into the first months of, of a child's life, is a afterbirth. That is a very powerful predictor of bad outcomes for kids. So that's one factor. There are other correlates, risk correlates, age of the mother, income, maternal education is a strong predictor. We can identify these children, and it would make sense from a moral point of view, from a well-being of society point of view, and from a long-term human capital development point of view, to invest our resources in supporting those families, those mothers in many cases, and those very young children. That's where we need to be focusing. The most bang for our buck. So I wanted to just turn briefly, we don't have a lot of time left, but I want to turn briefly to sort of the question of childcare in the pandemic, because this is the thing that's at the top of a lot of people's minds right now. There was an interesting piece by Carrie Lucas in the Washington Post the other day that talked about some of the regulations around daycare centers and childcare centers in particular. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, as people are worried about social distancing and too many big crowds, it seems like kind of a home-based child care where you're only dealing with, you know, four or five kids being cared for in the home of somebody you know, 
seems like a great alternative, but home care centers have actually come under a lot of regulatory pressure. It's very difficult to open one. Carrie was talking about how, you know, these centers have to show that there aren't even any tripping hazards in the home, which believe me, my house would not pass. So, you know, how do we take advantage of of these smaller home care centers and what are some of the regulations, you know, and other obstacles that are going to stand in our way to getting back to some kind of child care? Well, first of all, the percentage of the people in the labor force previous to the pandemic, the percentage of the people in the labor force who had children under age five was about 4% of the labor force. The percentage of the labor force with children under age three was about 2%. So it is not the case that child care for the youngest children is going to stand between us and reopening the economy. So that's the first thing. Obviously, as you guys know, with older children, school-age children, that is a whole other story, but it's not a large percentage of the workforce. That's the first thing. The second thing is the issue of center-based versus home-based care. The pandemic is, is more revealing an issue than causing one. Many families prefer home-based care over center-based care for a range of reasons. One of them, Naomi, is what you said. It's just a smaller group. It's in a home. It has a cozy home feeling, which is what a lot of people want for their children. And research has actually shown, suggested, that home-based care, kind of a small scale of home-based care, may actually be preferable from an early development point of view. There's also language and food and culture. People want their children in an environment that reflects their own culture and somebody from your own community, your own neighborhood. Because of some of the policies that you were referring to, the kind of regulatory issues have favored center-based care. On the presumption that you can better regulate or certify the individuals running center-based care? I think if you yourself, let's just say, Ian, you were put in charge right this minute, you were put in charge of child care in New York City. There's a lot of very poor quality child care. The number of children who are injured or actually die in child care is not insignificant. So the second you're put in charge of child care in New York City, and it's your responsibility to make sure that all these little kids are okay you would naturally start to focus on the places where you could kind of clump all the kids together so you could kind of keep an eye on the situation. So from the point of view, and I think there's, this is legitimate, from the point of view of policymakers, the idea of tens of thousands of children out there in these like homes and who knows what's going on, it is not an impossible system to, to manage, but it takes more thought and it's more complicated. So one of the very important things about childcare is that it is just about entirely driven at the state level. So the regulations in one state compared to another state are going to be radically different. This is not a problem that can be solved on the national level. It's a state-by-state effort. So decline in the supply of home-based childcare availability was down by, over the past several years, was down by about half wow. prior to this pandemic. So what would be ideal would be for us to take this opportunity to shore up the home-based sector. There are a number of of things that we would need to do to do that. But I think that insofar as the pandemic is shedding a light on the value of home-based care in the child care arena, that's a very positive thing. I mean, Catherine, you and I have talked a lot about how shifts in family formation and different trends of children, the increased number of children being raised in single-parent households, 
how that has created more need for external childcare. What's your position on how we can address some of these issues related to family formation as opposed to, again, always focusing on institutional center-based care? Yeah, I mean, as we see from this pandemic, people have various components to their lives that they are, people are trying to plan and manage. And there are certain conditions that make that much easier than, than other conditions. And there are certain circumstances that are simply much better for young children than others. So the kind of work that you do in, in schools, in theory, in schools, we are helping young people think about how to plan their lives planning how they bring children into the world, not only is it as important as whether they'll be a doctor or or a lawyer or a massage therapist, it's much more important. So that question of how we as a society are caring for the young children who are here and how future generations are thinking about the conditions under which they will bring new humans into the world is of the utmost importance. I think we can't end on a more important question than that. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? We greatly appreciate Catherine Stevens joining us today. I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Catherine, thank you. That was excellent. And you can hear episodes of Are You Kidding Me? You can find them either on the AEI website, aei.org, or you can get them wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again. Thanks. Thanks.